0: For those of you who haven't been with us in the past few months, we've been working through the book of Acts. Um, so last week, Pastor Daniel, had, Pastor Daniel had chapter 24 and 25 of Acts. So in these chapters, we've seen Paul was arrested in Caesarea under the power of um, Felix, the governor. And so the charges against Paul led him to be put on trial for, essentially, they wanted, the Jews wanted to kill him. Um, So, Paul pleads his case, and um, as he's pleading his case, the second time he appeals to Caesar. Now, appealing to Caesar puts the governor in quite a sticky situation. The second time he was on trial, it was to governor Festus. Festus replaced Felix after a couple of years. Now, the reason why it puts the governor in a sticky situation is does not really have anything to charge Paul with. So imagine Paul turns up to Rome and his Paul shackled, and we want you to kill this guy. And he's looking and there's no charges. Imagine how frustrated Emperor Nero would be when you've got this guy here wasting his time and there's no charges against him. So Festus is going to take this opportunity that's coming up to try to get some charges against Paul. Now Um, King Agrippa, uh, he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great was responsible for the killing of um, the infants during the time Jesus was born. Agrippa's great-uncle, Antipas, was responsible for the beheading of um, John the Baptist... And then his father, Agrippa I, was responsible for killing James the Apostle. And Paul's going to get the opportunity to stand before this man that has a long line of um, rough encounters with Christians. So this brings us to Acts chapter 26, and Paul's brought into to the amphitheater at Caesarea. So I believe Daniel talked to you guys a little bit about this last week. And so Festus uses this opportunity ...as the new governor to show off a bit of his wealth. So he's got all the officials from the area. He's got his, his guards clothed up in their armour. He's showing off his pomp. And there's a King Agrippa there. And King Agrippa's dressed up in his wealth and his riches. And in walks Paul. He's been in prison for several years now. A little bit worse for wear. And he just trudges in. Nothing special about his parents. And he's going to get to address this congregation... King Agrippa stands up and he motions at Paul and he gives Paul permission to defend himself. So this brings us to Acts chapter 26 and verse 2. Paul begins to speak and he says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. We're going to pause here. This is quite interesting that the first thing that Paul says is that I'm happy. This guy's just been locked up for two years for something he hasn't done, and the first thing he says is, I'm pretty happy today. So Paul's got something going for him. Um, We we could guess a few of the reasons why maybe he was happy. Number one, this moment is the fulfillment of Acts chapter 9.15, where Paul was told in vision that he would get to speak before kings. This is happening that day. Another reason maybe he's happy because he's encountering the man that's responsible for killing or the family line of those who are responsible for killing uh, John the Baptist, James the Apostle, and the man who tried to wipe out Jesus. So maybe he's thinking, now it's my time, now it's God's time. But the main reason why I think Paul is happy this day, other than that he knows God, is because this is another opportunity for Paul to witness. And this is what Paul was put on this earth to do, to share the gospel so we move on to, to verse 4. Paul starts sharing his testimony. He says, My manner of life from youth, spent from the beginning among my nation, and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known me for a long time, and if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now Paul is an extremely religious man. Before, before conversion, Paul was Saul. Um, so just keep that in mind when I say Saul, it's pre-conversion. When it's Paul, it's post. Saul was a religious man. If you came across Paul on the street, you know, that, that's, Paul, that's Saul. He knows God. He's keeping Sabbath. He's paying his tithes. He reads his Bible. He prays. If you had a question, you'd go to Saul. So Just keep this in mind as we're building up this story. Verse 6. And now I stand here on trial... Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, so the reason why Paul was put on trial was for believing in the very thing that all the Jews believed in. He's put on trial for clinging to that hope, that hope that we see in Genesis three fifteen, that although Adam and Eve are being cast out of the garden, there's hope of a Messiah. We're going to be reconnected with God, and this is what Paul clings to, and this is why he's being charged. Um, we continue reading. Jump down to verse eight. Why is it thought incredible for any of you that God raises the dead? Now, if Paul asks that question today, is it incredible to think that God can raise the dead? A lot of people might say yes. Because we live in an age where the question isn't, does God God raise the dead, but rather, does God exist? But this wasn't like that in this time. This was a group of religious people that he was addressing. They might not have all worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Jews, but they believed in God. They believed in the God of creation. So for Paul to say that God can raise the dead, this is not a big ask. And yet this is what he's on trial for. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, I find it pretty interesting too that Paul being an educated man, he would be considered to have done several PhDs. This is a man that has all the answers. And yet when defending himself, he doesn't go into the nitty-gritty of it all. He just shares his story. But what can we learn from that? Now we continue this story. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And then we need to pause here and back up a little bit. This is Saul. This is the godly man who knows how religion works. is there every Sabbath. He's paying his tithes, and yet, look how far he's gone. He's now persecuting people. Could it be possible that we think that we're following God and we're doing all the right things to the book, to the strictest party, like a Pharisee, and yet be used as a tool by the devil. This is a pretty scary thought because Saul was doing everything he thought he should do. I pay my tithe, I go to church, I read my Bible, I study the Word, I pray, and yet, here he is, being used by the devil. This is a wake-up call for all of us. No one is um, free from being used by the devil. We need to be very vigilant in our day-to-day walk. We're We're in war here. We're at We're at battle. Um, We continue reading. Rather than continue reading, I'll I'll just share it with you. In verse 12 through to 14, Paul starts to share his experience, his conversion experience. Now, he was on this mission from God to rid the world of these pesky Christians, these guys that were ruining it for everyone else, sent from God. So Paul's wandering along the road to Damascus. He's got God on his side. I'm going to get rid of these Christians, these heretics. Next second, there's a flash of light. Paul falls to the ground, all the guys with him, and he's blinded. And then he hears this voice call from the light, and it says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to king, kick against the goads. Now when I first read that, I'm thinking, what, what's a goad? Is it like a large goat? I'm not sure. But when I looked it up, a goad is a large sort of stick with a spike on the end, and so, when they were farming, they had their oxen shackled up to the plow, and they would use the goad to direct the oxen. And so, what Paul is doing is he go, he's going the opposite direction to the, the ox driver. He's going the opposite direction to God. But he didn't realize it. Imagine kicking against a, a sharp spike. That's going to hurt, it's going to leave some damage. It's not until Paul encounters God that he realises he never knew God. Paul thought he was doing everything right. He was following the book. He was following the rules. And then he meets Jesus. And bam. Oh, you mean I wasn't meant to be killing those Christians. That was bad? Yeah, it was bad, Paul. What are you doing? It's not until we encounter Jesus ourselves that we can be changed from the inside out. Now, these things that Saul was doing, paying tithes, keeping the Sabbath, these are all great things, but they in and of themselves do not save us. God wants our heart. I've got a quote here from Alan White. In Steps to Christ, page 18, she says, It is impossible for us, of ourselves, to escape from the pit of sin which we have sunken. Our hearts are evil, and we cannot change them. Education, culture, the exercise of will, human effort they all have their sphere, but they are powerless. They cannot change the heart. There must be a power working from within. That power is Christ. So like I was saying, these things that Saul was doing, these are great these are great things. This is what God wants us to be doing, but they don't change our heart. God wants our heart. And this brings me to my own encounter. Um, I grew up in the Seventh Day Adventist Church, perhaps like a lot of you. And growing up, all I saw was this list of rules: you got to do these things. And for me, I went, "No, that's not for me. Um, I want to find pleasure and happiness. I was put on here for on Earth for adventure." And so I started searching for adventure, and that search led me to Canada and I was working in the snowfields over there. I wasn't really working, I didn't have a job, but I was there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So each day I um, I was snowboarding, at night I was partying, because this is what I was put on earth to do for adventure, for excitement. And I was living my dream. And it wasn't long before that dream kind of wore thin. I'm going, well, what's next? So then you'd party harder, and you'd look for... More gnarly lines to do on the snowboard, bigger jumps. You just keep pushing it because that's what life is all about. But then I got thinking, you know, h- how long before I reach the top? Is is there a top, or am I just going to be constantly going? What's next? And I can remember the day that I had my first encounter with Jesus. It was towards the end of the snow season, and I was in the forest because that's what I like to do. I get in the forest, and I'm walking around with my mate, and we're chatting. And I was just sharing with her about where my headspace was at. That I was, although I was living my dream, I was kind of a bit lost. And um, I just remember having this stream of consciousness, and I was talking more than I usually do, um, and it was just just verbalizing every single thought I had. And then all of a sudden, it clicked. Those rules and that that I saw that were restricting me as a kid—that was a list to stop me from enjoying life—was actually. The ticket to enjoy life it was the ticket to freedom not that by keeping them i would be saved but they were pointing me in the right direction the law would reveal to me that i needed jesus it wasn't until i encountered jesus that i understood what it was all about we need to each of us need to ask this question have you encountered jesus maybe you're like me and you grew up in the church and then you left seeking something else or maybe you've stayed here the whole time But just because you've been in this building the whole time doesn't mean you've met him yet. This is the most important question that we could each ask ourselves. Have I encountered Jesus? Think about how much time we put into thinking about what will I do for a career. We research, we think about it hard. Some maybe more than others. Or buying a new car. You research which has got the best mileage, which is the safest. What kind of activities do I want to do? You put a lot of time into buying new things. And yet... When it comes to Jesus, do we even ask the question, have I met him yet? Or are we just going through the motions? Looking at everyone else and go, oh, that's what I'm meant to do. So I'll just join the crowd, or just follow along. This is the most important question we can each ask ourselves. And we've only got one lifetime to do it. Encountering Jesus is like encountering a tsunami. You cannot stay the same afterwards. Why... Why would I, as a 20-year-old, leave the carefree lifestyle, snowboarding and partying, move up here, work long hours for little pay? It doesn't make sense. Why would a 20-year-old do that? I had one guy say, you're throwing away your youth. You know what the answer is? I encountered Jesus. You can't stay the same when you meet Jesus. He changes you. Some people don't have a testimony Simply because they don't have a testimony. They haven't met Jesus yet. So we need to ask ourselves this question. Have I met Jesus? We'll continue reading on in Acts 26. And what we're going to look at now is the vision that Paul receives from Christ. Verse 15, he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen, me to those in which you and will will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. This is Paul's mission, and this is our mission to encounter Jesus and then to help others to open people's eyes to the power that satan has over them once your eyes are open you don't stay the same jesus is a rock and we've got two options we either fall on that rock and we're broken he puts us back together we won't be put back together the same it's a new improved version or we wait till later and that rock's going to come down on us and it's going to come down hard two choices either way we're going to be broken This, this concept of opening their eyes, I don't know if any of you have had that, that, that experience before, that being blind but now I see. It's amazing grace. The power of deception is incredible and it's not until you step out of it and you step into the light that you look at where you were and you're what was I doing there? How could I not see? And maybe you're in that light now and you're looking around at your friends and your family and going, how can they not see this? Which is why it's our duty to reach out to them. In life, there's several different times. It talks about in the Bible we get these two options. Either you're with the wheat or you're with the tares. Are you a goat or you're with sheep? David Roper has this quote. He says, every soul with Christ is a missionary. Every soul without Christ is a mission field. Which one are you? There's no sitting on the fence. Either you've encountered Christ and you're going to be sharing that experience with other people, or... You're still a mission field. Ask yourself the question, which one are you? I've been asking myself this question all week. Um, I went back to Victoria and I had a really good break. But spiritually, I was getting flat. I just went home and I switched off. You know, it's not an easy journey. And we all have our times when we struggle. And then I come back and I'm preparing the sermon. And I've been getting kicked all week. Have I encountered Jesus? What am I doing here? We need to be constantly reevaluating this situation. Am I a missionary or am I a mission field? I'm meant to be out there reaching out to people and I'm sitting there this week going, someone needs to reach out to me. Read in verse 19. Therefore King Agrippa was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, Then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds keeping with their repentance. There's two points I want to draw on here. Point number one after encountering God, Paul was obedient. And this, another question we have to ask ourselves is are we going to be obedient to God? or obedient to man. And I remember thinking to myself, when, when the big test comes, then I'll be obedient to God. In the, right now, I'm happy just sitting, I'll just be quiet. But when the big test comes, when that day comes, I'll be ready then. But how can we be ready to run a marathon if we've never trained for it? It's like saying, I'm going to be a powerlifting Olympic champion. I don't need to train though, I'll just show up for the event. Look how small I am. I'm not going to win that. Are we going to be obedient to God or to man? To be obedient in the big things, to be faithful in the big things in life, we need to be faithful in those small ones. This is a a challenge. Um, And we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament where there was three boys... Four, but the fourth one wasn't there when they were tested, and they were faithful in the small things, which meant they could develop the strength to be faithful in the big. Daniel chapter 1, we see that the Babylonians have just conquered Jerusalem and they've taken a heap of slaves with them. Four of these slaves, you've got Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they've been taken as prisoners. Now, these were the intellectuals of Jerusalem, so the Babylonians decided we're going to put them in our schools. We're going to teach them our ways. We're going to utilize these guys. And when they get taken to, the, to Babylon, the city, they've been given the privilege to eat at king's table and to eat his food. And you know what they decide to do? We're not going to eat that. Are you, you guys nuts. This guy's going to chop your head off. They go, I don't care. I'm going to be faithful to God in the small things. And I read this the first time. And I'm thinking, what's the big deal? Who cares if you have a steak? It's okay. Who cares if it's unclean meat? what's the big deal, it's just eating but then if we turn over a few chapters chapter 3 King Nebuchadnezzar is rebelling against God and he's decided to build up this golden statue and he's calling in all the officials from the land and he's going to get everyone to worship this statue and so the day comes and everyone's standing there, the trumpet sounds and Nebuchadnezzar says you bound down to my statue who do you think was able to be faithful on the big day there's a lot of Jews there Who was able to stand up? There were three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The ones that were faithful in the small things were then faithful in the big. We're kidding ourselves if we think when the time comes, when we're tested for our faith and we're threatened with death, we're going to be faithful. We can't be faithful in those little things today. If I'm not proud enough to share my faith with my friends because I'm embarrassed about what they think now, you know what Jesus says to me about that? Turn with me to Matthew chapter ten and verse thirty-one. Matthew chapter ten, verse thirty-one, and he says, oh thirty-three, sorry." Matthew ten thirty-three says, "But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny them before my Father who is in heaven." That's pretty scary. It doesn't seem like a really big deal if I just fail to mention that I'm a Christian to my friends. It's not a big deal. When the time comes, I'll be ready. I'm kidding myself if I think that. To be faithful in the big things, we need to be faithful in the small. This is some challenging things that I'm bringing up today, but these are important questions that we each need to ask ourselves. If not now, then when? Paul goes on in verse 20, we read it before, but he talks about performing deeds, keeping with their repentance. And what is Paul talking about here? One second he's saying we're we're saved by grace, and then it almost sounds like he's saying we earn it, deeds fitting with repentance. This isn't what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that the health of the roots is revealed in the health of the fruits. If we've encountered God, the way we live our life is going to reveal that. To be faithful in those little things, so we can be faithful in the big things, we need to have encountered God. Our actions, how we live our life, how we respond to our friends reveals whether or not we've encountered God. Like I was saying before, um, Saul, he was living a good life. He was following God to the best of his ability, but he hadn't encountered God yet. So he was doing good things and he continued doing those good things afterwards. The change though? Direction, because he had encountered God. He knew where he was going then. The health of the roots, the health of our heart, is revealed in the health of our fruits. God doesn't care about the externals if we're still rotten to the core. How does that help us? Imagine getting to that day, that second coming and going, "Hey God, well look at all these great things I did." He goes, "But look at the core of you, it's rotten." Turn turn with me to Matthew chapter chapter 7. These are some more scary words from Jesus. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. I'm going to read down to 23 these are possibly the scariest words i've read in the bible not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of the father who is in heaven on that day many will say to me lord do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name going by the description these sound like christians how does jesus talk to them and he said then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness that's brutal Depart from me. Imagine it's the second coming, everyone's excited. Jesus, we've been waiting for you ages. Depart from me. Whoa, that is scary. We really need to take the time to ask the question Have I encountered God? All of us, myself, the leadership team at this church, even if it's your first day, ask yourself this question Have I encountered God? Do I want to encounter God? It's the most important question you could ever ask yourself in life. It reminds me of a story. I heard of a story about a slave in America. And the slave, the owner of the slave was finished with him. He didn't want him anymore. So he sent him to the auctions. And they're auctioning off this slave. And he's a big man. He's, he looks like he'd be a good worker. As they start bidding on him, he starts shouting, I will not work! I'm finished! And they keep bidding on him. And they keep shouting. And eventually people lose interest. But there's one man. He seems persistent to buy him. And so he starts looking at that guy in the eye. and He goes, I will not work. Eventually the bid ends and this guy buys him. And he walks over to him. And the guy's still saying, I'm not going to work for you. He unshackles him. And he said, I didn't buy you to work, I bought you to set you free. And you know what that guy did? He fell on his knees, started sobbing and said, I'll work for you for the rest of my life. Work's befitting repentance. Our actions will reveal the encounter we've had with God. I'm more than happy to work for a person when you know that person loves you and has your best interest for you. It wouldn't be that bad being a slave if you had your food taken care of, you had a nice bed, everyone's all comfortable. Slave just a word. I'd, if I'm looked after, good owner. Works for fitting repentance. We're going to jump down to verse 21. Paul says, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. The reason why the Jews seized Paul was because he was being faithful to God rather than faithful to man. To this day I've had the help that comes from God and so I stand here to testify both to small and to great saying nothing but the prophets nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the gentiles. And we see time and time again Paul throughout his testimonies he comes back to the resurrection. Why is Paul so interested in the resurrection? Um, That's old hat, isn't it? There's two reasons why I think Paul's interested in the resurrection. Number one, all of Christianity hangs on it. If you want to disprove Christianity, you, you disprove the resurrection. But if you want to prove it, that's where your proof is. If anyone is still sitting on the fence about that, I recommend reading A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It's a great book. He actually set out to disprove christianity and he knew if he was going to disprove it he'd disprove it with jesus he'd disprove it at the resurrection this man's now a christian the resurrection proves it all this is what it all hangs on if jesus didn't resurrect on that sunday we're up the creek without a paddle we're still on death row but if he did resurrect on that sunday and we've got the evidence there we can be Um, we can believe this beyond reasonable doubt then this is the greatest news that we can ever hear it truly is the good news about Jesus there's no other news hence why we should be asking ourselves the question have I encountered him and the second reason why Paul continually speaks about the resurrection is because his own life was resurrected not in a physical sense but in a spiritual sense he was walking around and he thought he was in the light but he was a dead man walking. And until we encounter God, we are as well. This is pretty, some pretty heavy stuff. Some, it's some good stuff to think about. Now we see that Paul in his, in his sharing... Now it's interesting that Paul was even sharing his, test, sharing his testimony this day. Because Paul had appealed to Caesar. So regardless of the outcome of this day... Whether or not they went, okay, he's innocent, he's still going to Rome. He's appealed to Caesar, and to Rome he will go. So today is not a trial. Today is just Agrippa being curious about one man. And so Paul directs his disclosure right to Agrippa. And if we jump down to verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe Paul was aware of King Agrippa's past. King Agrippa lived as a Jew, although he didn't have Jewish blood. He understood the customs and the practices. And he puts King Agrippa in a bit of a difficult situation. If King Agrippa says, no, I don't believe the prophets, then all the Jews lose faith in him. Who's this King Agrippa guy? We thought he was one of us. But if he says he does believe in the prophets, then that means he believes in the resurrection. Paul has him in a corner. Verse 28, And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time... Would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. After encountering Jesus, Paul's only desire in life, his mission in life, was to share his experience with others so they could have the same love that he had. Just think about this concept encountering god this is the most powerful being in the universe the creator of it all and we can get to know him that's pretty incredible when you start thinking about it it's almost so incredible that i think we just put it on the shelf and go well maybe it's too good to believe but paul believed this with all his heart and his desire was for king agrippa to see this and his desire was for everyone else who heard this message today each of us is hearing this same message. The desire for God is for each one of us to come to him, to encounter him, and be changed by him. I don't know if you've ever felt like a slave to your old life and just hoping for a new one, a slave to a habit. Jesus wants to set us free. He's paid the price. All we've got to do is let him. You know what that leads to, though? a life working for him because how could you not be thankful for something so huge if if you only take one thing from this whole sermon and i've been repeating it time and time again because i know daniel last week was talking about information overload and um we are in the information age we read great articles and the next second oh look a puppy um it's straight out If you only get one thing out of this sermon, it's this question. Have I encountered God? If you haven't encountered God, then you need to start seeking. And if you have, you should be sharing it. Because it's the greatest thing that you could ever be doing. I love my life now. I'm stoked with it. It doesn't doesn't really make sense. If I ask myself the question, um, actually... I felt, when I, was, when I was in church as a kid, I felt the call to ministry. I don't know how old I was, I think, I was under the age of 10, I remember, sitting in church, and God just putting this deep impression in my, my mind, going, you should be a pastor. And me going, no, I'm not doing that. And I pushed it away. And I, I just went, that's going to stop me from having fun. I want to see the world. And then here I am, after encountering Jesus, I couldn't be more happy. This is all I want to do. I want people to experience what I've encountered. You, you can't encounter Jesus and remain the same. So I'll just pray that each one of us comes to encounter Jesus and that each one of us can share it with our friends. Now I was saying before that either we're a missionary or we're a mission field. Now, being a missionary does not mean you need to pack up your bags, quit your job and move to Argentina. It doesn't mean that you need to be a pastor. It doesn't mean that you need to go through the Arise program and be a Bible worker. Being a missionary means just sharing your experience with those around you. Each of us has a circle of influence that only we can reach, whether it's your immediate family or your friends. That's what it means to be a missionary, just sharing your experience with God. Just bow your heads with me as we pray. Dear Lord... I just pray that each one of us can have that same Damascus Road experience as Saul had, Lord. That we can have an encounter with you that will be like getting hit with a tsunami. Break us on that rock and put us back together anew, Lord. I pray that each one of us can become a missionary for you. To be sharing that true love with the world. Um, I just want to thank you so much for the Sabbath day, Lord. An opportunity to to rest from the week and to connect with family and friends and to to worship as a congregation i pray that throughout this week throughout this month throughout this year lord we'll be constantly reevaluating our situation with you asking ourselves the question have i encountered god do the fruits of my life match my root system and i just look forward to seeing how you bring new life into this church lord both to kingscliff and to tweed heads There's exciting things to come this year. It's all because of you, Lord, and we thank you for that. I pray this in your name. Amen.